Welcome to the Omnibus Show, a program for people who are interested in everything, with deep conversations on a wide variety of subjects. And now, your host, Dave Gibbs. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Omnibus Show, the program for people who are interested in everything, with deep conversations on a wide variety of subjects. This week's guest is Aaron Wren. He's co-founder and senior fellow at American Reformer. He also writes on cultural topics at aaronwren.substack.com. Wren has worked as an urban policy researcher, writer, and consultant. He was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research for five years. His work has been featured in leading publications such as the New York Times, The Guardian, and The Atlantic, among others. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. You've done a lot of work on cultural topics. Um, would you please take us through the journey, your journey, um, in public matters? Well, I've really had three separate careers. After I graduated from school, I first moved to Chicago and worked in management consulting. Mm -hmm. So I was with a company called Accenture for a very long time, one of the world's largest professional services firms. I did that for about 15 years, helping companies you know, adapt to changing technology and business landscapes. And then I got interested in urban policy and cities. And I'd grown up in a rural area. I grew up four miles outside of a town of 50 people. And I, I created a blog about cities called The Urbanophile, The Lover mm -hmm. of Cities. Someone once said, Aaron, you love cities like only someone from a town of 50 people or so can. <laughs> what I saw was that all the discussions about what cities should be were coming off of the coast. It was places like New York or it was Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. But the Midwest was sort of overlooked. I was a Midwestern guy, grew up in southern Indiana and was living in Chicago. I just felt like we do not get people writing about cities, writing about the cultures of places from the standpoint of where we're at, we need to have indigenous thinking, indigenous R&D. So I started mm -hmm. a blog to sort of write about the topic because I thought I had something to say, and it got really popular. It did. And I used to read it frequently oh, all the well, time. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I ended up uh, winning an international competition for ideas on how to boost public transit ridership in Chicago. One of my readers said, Aaron, the Chicago Land Chamber of Commerce is sponsoring this. You should enter it. So I entered it and ended up winning. And because they had a great PR department at the Chicago Land Chamber, ended up with my picture on the cover of the Chicago Tribune above the fold. That's awesome. I like to say, I, I'm so glad I got my picture in the paper while there's still a paper to get your picture, picture in. in. Yeah. yeah, that's I, that, I love that. But people would start <clears throat> calling me, media people, or even government officials asking me things. I'm like, man, maybe there's a, another career here. And so I ended up leaving Accenture to try to professionalize mm -hmm. that. And it took a while to figure it out, but ended up at a think tank in New York City, where I still mostly focused on the Midwest. Yes. And so I, I had this whole second career talking about places and how can we help some of these overlooked places in America to thrive again. Uh, and this was something that, of course, really exploded in the public consciousness after the 2016 election. And then about a decade ago... I got interested in a third topic. It really started out looking at men's issues because I saw 
you know, men are sort of checked out of churches, they're checked out of the traditional institutions of society, yeah. but yet there are all these sort of online influencers who are starting to attract thousands of, of young men. At the time, it was tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. Yes. And why are they turning to these guys? And so I started writing about the, those the issues. The manosphere. The manosphere. Type. I started writing in that. Of course, today, everyone's heard of Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, or the infamous Andrew Tate, who's mm -hmm. reached something like 80% of all teenage boys. So I got very interested in that, and particularly from the standpoint of how can, how can churches really reach men? Mm -hmm. And so I, I sort of became someone who was... Uh, been known for sort of cultural analysis in the present day, sort of from a religious lens. But that's basically what I do I do today. Although I still do all of the other things that I did before on urban policy urban and policy. Need some consulting as well. That's fascinating because you've you've. That's why I kept it kind of open ended because you've had such a wide experience, and I find it very fascinating. Uh, I was a, a regular reader on Embranophile, and um, to um, kind of dovetail or six degrees of separation, when I started out as a photographer, I actually, when I was in college, I actually started um, my shadowing. I was a shadow slash assistant with photographers from the mm -hmm. Chicago Tribune, mm -hmm. so we have that relationship tied right. in. But that's really, really fascinating that you, you, you've, you've taken that path because I think you have a, a perspective that, from what I've read, has a lot to offer a lot of people in, 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 who are interested from everything from urban development and so forth to, to um, men's, you know, men's issues. And I think we can, um, we can follow you on that and see how, how things are going. On urban policy, um, and, and I always add all three, the, the suburbs and the rural communities, um, what would you say are key factors in a community renewal, or however you would want to phrase that, that term? Well, a lot of what I studied was the Midwest. Mm -hmm. This is the area they called the Rust Belt. Sure. It's places that by and large had gone into decline. Yeah. And some of them, like Chicago, sort of came back. They had something of a comeback. So 1981, the Chicago Tribune did a four-part front-page series called A City on the Brink. It basically mm -hmm. argued Chicago is going down the tubes, mm -hmm. and there's basically no way to save it. Well, Chicago came back. And yes, they've got huge problems. Let's not minimize the problems there. But like New York and like some of the other big cities, Chicago came back. And so, But this is a region that was characterized by pervasive decline. Most places didn't come back. And I've heard all the theories about how cities come back. One of them is we need to... Uh, cut taxes. So there's the whole tax cut theory, cut regulation, be more business friendly, be like Texas with no income tax. That'll draw people. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that, well, we need to invest in education or we need to invest in, in public places or we need to subsidize knowledge clusters. There are all of these theories out there. Yes. And what I have come to the conclusion is all of them have worked in some places uh, all of them have failed in other places. And really, if you look at the Midwest or the area that I call the Old North, which are the 23 states in the Great Plains, the Midwest and the Northeast, sure. basically none of them are doing all that great, mm -hmm. regardless of policy. If you look at the places that are doing great, they tend to be in the West and they tend to be in the South, in the south. Southwest. Yeah. And so I think a lot of times there's not a lot we can do. I hate to say that. And... Is, is there has to be sort of the propipita, 
has to be times uh, that are ripe for renewal. You know, cities came back in the 90s, mm -hmm. and everybody credited the super mayors like Giuliani or Richard Daly and all these different ones. And they were all good in their own way, but the reality is cities were just coming back. Yeah. Now we see that, you know, the Youngstown didn't come back, Flint didn't come back. And I don't know if there's a public so policy solution mm -hmm. to some of these problems. You know, if you look at it, you see Indiana's a red state, Illinois is a blue state. They look very similar in terms of they're kind of stagnant you know, mm -hmm. demographically and economically. Uh, again, you know, New Hampshire, the live free or die, you know, uh, libertarian paradise versus socialist Vermont. They look an awful lot alike. Yes. So sure. you say big states, small states, red states, blue states, urban states, rural states. All of these have kind of done relatively the same. Some better here, some better there. Uh, and the number one predictor of population growth since 1960 has basically been your average temperature in January. <laughs> and so sometimes external factors count for a lot, mm -hmm. I'm afraid to say. And so what I argue is, if you have a community, don't think you could like, make it prosperous just by sort of taking action. But I say try to make it a better place to live for the people who are already there. Sure. Focus on the people who live there and say, how can you make, make their lives better and you do that basically through high-quality public goods and services. Let's have our streets paved. Let's remediate the brownfields. Let's have nice parks, things of that nature. Yeah. Let's fix up our downtown. Let's have things that are good for us that make our lives better. And if other people want to take advantage of it, so mm -hmm. much the better. Yeah. Well, that's very good because I think Indianapolis has moved strides from where it was, say, in the 1970s. And Carmel was originally primarily a, a Quaker farm town that developed. Um, it's really developed during um, Mayor Brainerd's term um, since the 90s. It's just grown leaps and bounds. I think the town has gone from the 20,000 20, uh, mark to about 100,000 now here in Carmel. So that's that's fascinating. Well, taking it to the to the your, your other side of your of your um, um, writing and, and study, um, how would you say uh, key factors in um, in men's renewal? How what would be what would be something more constructive uh, that would be dif that differentiates? Because you're you're different. While you're interested in men, you're very different from that manosphere right. crowd. Well, what I say is. We have to be honest about the facts that men and women are different. Mm -hmm. You can see this in the psychology literature where they differ on things like the big five personality traits. You know, Jordan Peterson's a psychologist, yeah. and one of the things that made him famous was his appearance on the UK's Channel 4, mm -hmm. where he had a very hostile female interviewer, and he said things like, well, women are higher in agreeableness than men are. And that's true. And so I think we need to have the courage to just talk about the ways that men and women are distinct so that they can flourish in who they are. Sure. Not because one's better than the other. Right. But because there's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all mm -hmm. uh, model for the gender. So I think there's been a sort of denial of, of human nature, a denial of reality there. So, so that's one. And then I think men, you know, one of the things that came out of the manosphere that's actually good was the ethos of self-improvement. And mm. what they will say is, why don't you focus on getting in better shape, you know, upgrading your style? 
learning how to be more confident in social interactions, learn how to become an entrepreneur and get better in business. And so all those things are good for you and then good for those around you. I think a lot of times people like a lot of the churches and other people, they like to tell men to man up. You just need to do your duty to mm-hmm. society, uh, you know, serve your wife and kids, do your, go to get a job and go to work every day. And there's some of that that's true, but people forgot about men themselves. Sure. And so helping yourself flourish in terms of health and those things are a prerequisite before you can do things for other people. Yeah. And so because you can't give somebody something you don't have yourself. And so I think this idea of helping people to achieve those things uh, is something that I would look at. You know, first let's help them get healthy and then look beyond themselves to society and, and family. Yeah, that's a much healthier perspective right. from the, the dividing um, the dividing perspectives. Um, that's that that's very um, that's a lot to think about because there's so many div- divisions today, and I think that. Um, you know, what are positive strides? And you're certainly suggesting reflection that would be um, constructive, and I think that's helpful. Well, to to circle back around on um, urban things, I wanted to finish this chapter on um, um, architecture, which I've I've read your writings before on, and I I like your perspective. Um, In your words, how does architecture affect us and impact our society? Well, there's this famous saying, you know, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. Mm -hmm. I really like architecture uh, of different varieties. I like classical and traditional architecture. I also like a lot of contemporary architecture as Mm -hmm. well, modern architecture. Yeah, I think a lot of people really don't care about architecture all that much. Uh, The famous uh, uh, curmudgeon H.L. Mencken Mm -hmm. once wrote an essay called The Libido for the Ugly. When he was talking about Westmoreland County, uh, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh, was like, this thing is so ugly, and they like it that way. <laughs> and so I think there's there's always been the temptation for uh, something of an elitist mindset when it comes to architecture mm-hmm. and you know, sort of uh, blaming the sprawl, the generic sprawl of our country for yes. you know making it look bad. And I would like to elevate uh, the public realm in terms of making architecture better. I think it makes a statement about things, uh, but we, you know, we shouldn't make that too much uh, of the number one thing. What I would just say, and this this comes back to like creating better communities as well, is that if you're trying to attract people to your community, if you're trying to attract in particular high talent people, that startup founder, that chief surgeon type person, mm-hmm. the CEO, they want to have public amenities that match their private amenities. If you have a multi-million dollar home and all of that, you don't want to live in a junky community. You want to live in a nice community. Correct. And so the architecture of the public realm, I think, goes along with setting a tone for the aspiration of the kind of place you want to be. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a very um, thoughtful and uh, critical in a good way, um, way to look at the community. And that's getting towards my interest in your thoughts on... Um, urban and suburban and rural, because this can apply to the rural communities as well, uh, renewal. So that's very thoughtful. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we're going to take a little break right now. And when we return, we will go into chapter two.
Welcome back. We're, we're, today we're speaking with Aaron Wren on social policy, and we're in, now in Chapter 2. Aaron, in regard to today's divisions, we touched on it a little bit before, what, what would you say is possible for positive social dynamics? You know, something that's uh, a positive, I don't want to say the third way, as that's been used before, but um, things that, um, that would be a positive um, social dynamic from what you've written, what you've observed. So you're basically asking me to solve world peace. I am. I am. That's what we all want. I think we need to recognize that some of the divisions in our society are not a result of just partisanship or style, but really reflect fundamental disagreements about the nature of the good life and the good society Mm -hmm. that simply can't be reconciled through compromise. So, for example, right here in Carmel, Indiana, some people really want to embrace a more forward-looking vision of like all these roundabouts that we've built yes. in our traffic intersections or more uh, high-density, mixed-use, urban-style development, you know, new parks, nice parks. Other people want the community to remain the way it was you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. They don't like this. They don't want it. They're like, I moved here to get away from that stuff. And it's really hard to find a compromise position between people who want a very different kind of future from each other. And so I think we need to recognize this. People are not necessarily going to get along. So what I just suggest to people in general is not to get, spend too much time on Twitter, not to spend too much time in politics, to find your identity in politics, but to, you know, focus on life. Mm -hmm. And if we, don't read the newspapers and we stay off social media and we just you know, go about our lives with our family, maybe visit the library in our, in our neighborhood, you know, talk with our neighbors without bringing that stuff up. It's like, wow, America can still be pretty good. And that's not true everywhere. There are lots of places that are very bleak and I don't want to overlook that. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes we uh, take this and we turn it into some sort of an existential crisis you know, when in fact, uh, especially in the local matters and other things, we can just dial back the amount of exposure that we have Mm -hmm. so we don't give ourselves like, you know, cortisol spikes, get ourselves unhealthy, have heart attacks, that sort of thing. So I think we do need to to recognize that some of these divides are fundamentally, fundamental and over substance. Mm -hmm. They're not just sort of cosmetic. Uh, In fact, when they were more cosmetic, when political parties were sort of just constellations of different groups that competed for power. Mm-hmm. It was more like a basketball game, you know, one wins, one loses, and then we could all, you know, go have a drink together or something. It's a yeah. lot harder to do that when there are groups of people that really are aligned around completely different views of society. Mm-hmm. So that probably not an easy way to reconcile that, but we can at least allow it not to harm us too much. And we can try to engage with people on the things that are maybe more practical at the local level mm-hmm. that cut against some of these national divisions and say, you know, how can we find things to talk to people about that don't involve these divisions all the time sure. and not make them the center of attention all the time? I guess that's the best that I could say. No, I think that's very thoughtful because it's we're certainly in a very divisive time and being constructive and especially locally constructive, whether you live in Carmel or whether you live in a town like Seattle or Los Alamos, 
we can all, you know, just be ourselves locally. Thank you very much for that. I know that's that's really a that's a tough question. <laughs> that was um, you said you were going to ask tough questions. You did. Yeah, there you go. Um, now, in a more personal way, because I I like to focus on those people who can learn from you personally. Um, if an individual thinking someone who's like a student who's coming up through work, maybe they've they've they're getting their first job and they're with a consultant agency and so forth, um, and they want to write and speak on matters of urban policy and reform. Um, what path would you suggest for effectively making a difference for them? Like, I know everybody's going to be individual, but just some thoughtful points of how they should develop their writing skills and their consultancy and you know what I mean. Right. Beyond the MBA. What I would say is when I was working primarily in urban policy, people used to ask me two questions above all else. Number one is, what is it that you actually do? And the other question is, how can I do what you do? And there was this sense that people really wanted to essentially be a journalist writing about different places. Mm -hmm. And I always tell people, you don't want to do what I do because... I'm in essentially in the creator economy or the influencer economy. I don't like to think of myself that way, just as I don't think of myself as a journalist either, although I sort of am. I still think of myself at heart as a consultant in what I do. Sure. The challenge with trying to go the route that I've gone in, in terms of being a public voice is that these success in these things follows a power law distribution. So there are a handful of very famous people who make a ton of money and sell a ton of books. Then there's a slightly larger set of group of people who make a living, and then everybody else basically can't make any money off of it. Mm -hmm. And so it's like that you know, when you're trying to create your own music. It's, it's like that in acting. It's like that in sort of any creator economy type field. Mm -hmm. Today, fewer and fewer people are sort of the superstars and are able to make a living at it. So you're going into something that's incredibly competitive. Uh, and secondly, in order to basically attract an audience for things in what I do, you sort of have to cut against the grain a little bit mm -hmm. and say things are a little bit outside the norm. Most people aren't wired for that. Yeah. And then secondly, when you start doing that, you know, it's sort of, even people who like you sort of view you as, you know, a little bit of a rogue operator. And so that sort of, uh, that sort of path is very, very difficult if you have a unique talent and a unique personality and you, you get some luck, you can do it. The, the, the way I think that most people operate is the inside game where you go and get a degree in, say, urban planning, work for a city, uh, you know, or end up being a consultant on some projects. Maybe you become a transportation planner. Uh, maybe you work for an engineering firm. And then you work essentially inside the system. Mm -hmm. It's not as fun sometimes. Yeah. Uh, as it is to just give your opinion on things, but it's definitely a much more stable career, and acquiring some credentials can definitely help you. And what those credentials look like are going to vary. Mm -hmm. If you get a PhD in economics, like say at Glazer or Richard Florida, two of the most famous commentators in this space, you know that's good. Again, a master's in urban planning, uh, you know, um, as some type of an architecture degree, something to get you a credential that gives you a certain technical authority mm -hmm. uh, in what you say. I don't have those, 
because I come from a management consulting background where we're not technicians in a particular niche field. Yes. We're looking holistically across, integratively across all the things at a high level. But I think that that's probably a safer career bet to go kind of the inside game. Uh, but for some people, you know, just like some people want to become actors, mm -hmm. some people really uh, want to sort of be a, a more public voice. But I always tell people, do not underestimate how difficult that is. I was very naive after getting my picture on the cover of the paper and having people call me. I'm like, oh, this is going to be easy. It's actually incredibly difficult mm -hmm. to make that transition. And it easily could have been a failure for me. Sure. Uh, and I was pretty good at what I was doing. And so just don't, es don't underestimate the difficulties of going to call it the anything that's like a creator economy route. Yeah. It's sort of like starting a business. Exhilarating, you can hit it big, but also extremely high risk of failure. Very high risk of failure. But uh, very exciting, and you're able to make a difference. I think Certainly. so. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thanks for um, sharing your thoughts on that. And um, now as we're moving on, um, what are you working on now that you would like to tell us about? I like to look at the, the areas where I see that there's a need or there's something going on, but other people aren't looking at it. And it's a space that kind of needs to be disrupted. Sort of did that with the city space. Nobody's paying attention to the Rust Belt. Nobody's paying attention to the Midwest. Everybody's just promoting what I call a school solution, cut taxes, spend more on education. I said, this space needs to be disrupted. I sort of did the same thing on men's issues. Right now, one that I'm doing is a project on the future of Appalachia. There's another sort of region that, it has been studied to death. I don't want to claim that no one has, has studied Appalachia. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, uh, J.D. Vance had a best-selling book, you know, the memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, talking about his Appalachian family. But I'm looking at the ways that remote work potentially offers possibilities for Appalachia, both in terms of attracting people and uh, in terms of connecting people who are there to jobs. So the opportunities are risks that come with that. And again, as I said earlier, the idea that remote work is going to just resurrect Appalachia, I don't want to make that claim. Sure. But I'm hoping on the margins and for individuals that this is going to be something that allows us to move in the correct direction. And maybe it is one of those structural factors that helps give a little bit of a lift. So that's what I'm working on right now. Sure. Well, thank you. And best wishes on that. Thanks. Thank you. Well, thank you for being with us today. We look forward to our next episode and with you to be with us on The Omnibus Show. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Omnibus Show. If you enjoyed this program, please like, share and subscribe to continue the conversation. For the Omnibus Show newsletter, please sign up at theomnibusshow.com.